Today's reading comes from the first letter of John, starting at uh, the first verse. The word of life. We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was revealed and we have seen it and testify to it and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim it to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we are walking in darkness, we lie and do not do what is true. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Let us pray. Lord God, may your spirit speak in and through me. May the words that I share bring our attention away from ourselves and onto you and who you call us to be. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've just uh, finished a long series on the Gospel of John. And just when you thought you'd finished with John, but wait, there's more. Over the next five um, weeks, we're going to step our way through each of the five chapters of the first epistle of St. John. Uh, during our Sunday services, uh, but there's also weekly Bible study and reflection resources available on our website. Biblical scholars are interesting people. Trust me, uh, they are interesting. Um, They're not always the life of a party. Um, If you want somebody somebody to get the party started, you you always have a biblical scholar on the top of your invite list, I'm sure. Uh, but they like to spend a lot of time discussing, ruminating, and debating about who was the physical person who actually wrote the words on paper that has become framed and we know as Holy Scripture. Um, on the one hand, it is all God's Word, and who actually wrote the words down doesn't really matter that much. But We live in a world in which where, when, how, and from whom we receive our information actually matters. When I was a child, I had never heard the expression fake news. News was news. 
and my parents religiously watched it on the ABC at 7 p.m. every night, which as a child I found incredibly boring. But I didn't question its accuracy, authenticity, or truth. If they reported that it happened a particular way, then it must have. But as I've got older, more aware, more educated and experienced, I've learned that news is relative to a whole range of different factors. What's known at the time, socio and demographic situations and backgrounds, political perspectives, agendas, both hidden and not so hidden, and so much more. I have a school friend who works in news media. Well, I, I say news media, but he works for breakfast television, um, which I'm sure he wants us to believe is actually news media, but is really just a combination of advertising, entertainment, information, and a little bit of news. But don't tell him I said that. He, uh, interestingly, he doesn't actually talk a lot about the issues in the news when we get together. And he's really guarded about the people that he works with, even when they're in the news. But when he does talk about things that are going on, we do take notice because we know him and we trust him. Because when it comes to news, relationship matters. He's known us since we were young, stupid, and idealistic, but has also continued to know us throughout our lives. And we've continued to know him, what he does, how he gets his information, who he is as a person. And so what he says and he thinks, I value. The author of 1 John knows the people he's writing to. And from the way that he writes, they know and trust him. I'm somewhat persuaded, although I know that there are much more learned uh, than I who will disagree, that this letter was written by the same person who wrote John's Gospel that we've just spent a number of weeks working through, who is also likely to be the same person who wrote the second letter and the third letter and the book of Revelation, who also could have actually been the beloved disciple referred to in John's Gospel, the brother of James, son of Zebedee. The things that persuade me are the, the style of the writing, the imagery and the consistency in it. But the thing that really, really interests me is the relational connection that we have if we look at the Apostle John actually writing down these words. It is also interesting that there seems to be unanimous consensus in the early church that it was John, the Apostle, and it was written towards the end of the first century. The distance between the time of writing and those who understood that he wrote it isn't really that long in terms of historical sense. But 
still it keeps biblical scholars amused trying to work out who actually wrote the words. Many think that if it was St. John, he was the last apostle alive, last man standing, if you like, and perhaps writing at a very old age. I might scare you by saying 70 or 80, um, a very old age, particularly in and then that generation. And he's looking back at his life and allowing his reflection on his life to influence his understanding of what is going on in the present. If we want to treat scripture with the utmost care, then it should matter when it was written, how it was written, to whom it was written, and what was motivating them to write. We should also allow the Holy Spirit to bring to life the living word of God in our lives right now and not just to leave them as ancient words on a page. Jesus was in a habit of giving people nicknames. We find this in the Gospels. He gave Peter a somewhat ironic nickname somewhat ironic in part because I've just called him Peter, but he was actually born as Simon. And Jesus called him Peter, which means the rock. It's amusingly ironic because as you read through the Gospels, he's probably one of the least solid and stable of all of the apostles. He's always saying the wrong thing. But the name stuck and Peter began to call himself Peter. And those around him now refer to him as Peter. And throughout the history of the church, Simon is a different person. We think of Peter. And Jesus did actually build his church on this rock of this person, Simon, who was named Peter. You might also recall that Jesus called James and John a particular name. He called them sons of thunder. Now, I can't help but thinking and wondering whether this was somewhat ironic as well because there is a story in the Gospels that has James and John asking their mummy to ask Jesus for a favour. Now, I don't imagine that a son of thunder would be asking Jesus um, via his mummy. They'd be just like Thomas going boldly up and telling Jesus exactly what they thought. So perhaps James and John were quite timid and shy and reserved. Some scholars suggest that John was not only the youngest out of James and John, but potentially the youngest of all of the disciples. And as I was thinking that, I began to fall in love with the imagery and the relational imagery that that created. This idea of John called the beloved because he was the little brother of the group, the youngest, who was looking up to Jesus as his elder, waiting on every word and every action, soaking it all in. It's suggested that he could have been as young as 17 or 18 when he first met Jesus. So can you imagine for a moment what it would be like as the last disciple alive 
reflecting back on your relationship with Jesus, which began with you as a timid teenager, with you looking up and being formed and shaped by the Messiah, the Son of God, God incarnate, who gave you and your brother a a cheeky nickname that you've actually grown into, like Peter. And looking back over the years, you now recognise that you are an influencer, particularly in the churches as your writing that gather around Ephesus. Ironically, in the second and third letters um, that this author writes, he refers to himself as the elder. As we dive into his words, I think we can see his relationship with Jesus from the beginning and it's how it's moved through his life. And now we see his relationship with Jesus in and through his community. He's very obvious in why he's writing this letter. We declare to you that we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us so that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. His purpose of writing is so that you may have also. John writes in the third person, Uh, He uses we, our, or us a total of 32 times in this chapter. Often when I'm reviewing my sermon after I've written my first draft, I'll find myself um, have written too many times the word you, and I'll go back and intentionally change it, um, in most cases, to we. And I do that because as a preacher, one of the things that I find important that if I'm trusting the Holy Spirit will speak in and through me and move you, then I should trust that the Holy Spirit will move me first. So I try to be aware that the words that I write should be coming from a place where I have been first moved. And we get that same sense from John as this letter, which is not really a letter, it's more like a sermon. So he, he might have written his sermon out like I did and then changed all the eyes to we's or to use, to use to we's. He's using community and relational language for the express purpose of community and relationship so that you also may have. At 49, I look back at my actions, my opinions and my decisions of my late teens and early 20s very differently to how I would have viewed them and described them there and then. They're now coloured by my awareness in retrospect of how they've formed me, how I've been changed and by the people who have influenced me since. I've discovered there's a level of wisdom in retrospect. There's a greater awareness of my interdependence in the relationship that I have grown into with God. 
At 18, I had a profound deepening of my relationship with God. But it didn't stop there. It continued and has continued to grow, change and deepen and develop. I've had many more moments of connection, but also many moments of disconnection. For those of you who are over the age of 70, you might actually find that you have a stronger sense than I do of the perspective for which these words that we read have been written. How I dealt with crises back then also would have been very different to how I would deal with a crisis right now. And this letter was written to deal with a crisis. Certain members of a dissident group claimed that they'd already arrived spiritually. And that they were in perfect fellowship, perfect relationship with God, free from sin and no need of Jesus. The older I get, the more I relate to the expression, there is more, the more that I know, the more I know that I don't know. Equally, I'm finding that the more that I've been forgiven, the more I realise my ongoing need of forgiveness. From John's vantage point, reflecting on a life shaped by an intimate relationship with Jesus, where he knew him as well as any other person, Jesus called him and his brother cheeky nicknames. He rested on Jesus' shoulder. He looked up and took it all in. Spent three years that changed his life forever at the feet of Jesus. But since then, he's had a life filled with hardship, suffering and sacrifice. But also a life that has witnessed the staggering transformation of individuals and communities in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, some know-it-alls are suggesting that they have it all together. Perhaps a little bit like an older person sitting with a younger person and them seeming to know everything that's going on and thinking, yeah, if only they knew, if only they knew. I get the sense that maybe John's writing like that. They think that they have no need for Jesus. They're suggesting that they know better than others. And so John thinks and then realises that it's time for a son of thunder to share some wisdom. Wisdom that he heard directly from Jesus when he was young. Wisdom that he'd wrestled with and lived with his whole life. Wisdom that he now shares so that we too can have relationship. But I love the way that he writes throughout this letter because there's gentleness and warmth in it. He's pretty matter-of-fact, but you see the love flow through it. And he starts his wisdom with this simple truth that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. 
as you reflect over your life, whether you be 49, 70, 17, 5, or 105, what has the relationship you have with Jesus brought to light about who you are, who you've been called to be, but also who you are not and have not been? As I was sitting with this verse, I did have a moment of unsettledness because I know that life can be dark. God is supposed to be with us. If there is no darkness at all, why does it often feel overwhelmingly dark? That's the thing about light. It reveals. It highlights. And it can also expose There can be shame, guilt, embarrassment and challenge in the moment. But forgiveness, which John goes on to talk about, allows us to let go of what we are not and embrace who God is. As we walk in and with the light, we find that the darkness does not overwhelm us. God's light does actually overcome. And I can see this most clearly when I look back in retrospect at my life with the wisdom and the distance of years. But in the moment, I think like all of us, I'm crying out, where are you, God? Why is this so dark? Equally, when I think, my personal light shines brightest. It's often followed by quickly coming down, crashing to reality that by myself I am not enough. From John's vantage point, he knows that we're kidding ourselves if we think that we have it all together. We've got all the answers. We have no sin or no need of Jesus. Showing the world that we have it all together, that we've arrived spiritually, or that we are without sin, is a falsehood that hasn't just infected the early church. It's infected much of what the world now knows as the Western church. We're full of righteous hypocrites. Every time we perpetuate the lie that Christians are right and, you're, and everybody else is wrong, that we are the moral crusaders of society trying to right all the wrongs and answer all the questions, many of which don't need answering, we're actually denying the message of Jesus that God is the actual light, not us. Because if we perpetuate this illusion, when we come crashing down, and we do come crashing down, people outside the church see it's a failing of God. And I think that's a great sin. As a community of people who live in that light and wrestle together with what that light reveals, highlights and exposes, and who rejoices together in the transformation that it enables... 
we should be illuminating the light of God, not by our judgments or not by our hierarchies, but by the way that we love one another. We don't want to be compared to those people for whom John is writing this letter. So whatever vantage point you are finding yourself looking from this morning, whether it is a lifetime full of walking in the light, whether it is a life that has been walking in and out of the light at different stages, whether it is a recent revelation that God is light, or whether you are still trying to work out whether this whole light thing is worth all the hard work that comes with it. Rest in the wisdom of John, knowing that it is in our relationship with Jesus that we grow into our calling and our mission. It's not a race. It's not about who gets to the end first. It's about a relationship that generates a wisdom that we are called to share so that others also might rest in that same light and experience the power of a relationship with Jesus. Relationship and church is not just a simple, warm, cosy gathering of like-minded people. It is a call to embody the light of God made known in Jesus. This is now my eighth year in leading this church community. In my first year, we discovered that we were a church called to be known for our relationships. I don't think that calling has changed. I hope it's deepened and I hope it's strengthened. But I hope this morning we've been reminded that relationships matter and how we share our stories and who we share them with matters. It mattered to Jesus as he shared with John. It mattered to John as he shared to the churches in Ephesus. And it matters now. What does God is light change about how you relate to others. My prayer is that we can shine brightly, that people will see God in and through us. They won't see a building full of hypocrites, people watching online thinking that they know better than everybody else but they will see people who gently share the light of God so that others might also share that light and know Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Amen.